0: Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. As many of you know, we're going through a pandemic at the moment. And with that goes our access to the studio. So we are making the most of our social distancing requirements and have created a studio at home. I'm joined today by Dr. Katie Layton-Jones, Associate Lecturer and Staff Tutor in History at The Open University, Also calling in via Zoom is Joseph Olar, former male welfare officer at St. Hugh's College, the University of Oxford, to discuss a very important issue in academia, mainly addressing mental health. Thank you both for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Pleasure to have you. As for usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Katie, would you like to start?
1: Yeah, well, I am extremely sophisticated, so I'm drinking orange squash. Ooh. Orange <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. It's wild times down my it, way. It is wild
0: times. I'm on antihistamines, so I'm having water. That's how exciting I am at the moment, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I'd be the most sophisticated here with my sobering instant coffee. All right, nice.
0: So. Yeah, I will say I, I used to be, I say used to, um, a, be a coffee snob because I lived in Italy for a couple years. And then I had a kid and now I'll take it intravenously. I'll just take it in my balls. I don't care how I can get it. Um, but I've already had my two. So I've been told I need to like throttle back a little bit. So so co- <laughs> water it is. And then maybe I'll bump it up after the antihistamines wear off. So. Uh, but Katie, could, could you tell us just a little bit about
1: yourself? Sure. Well, I'm a British historian. I focus on the 18th and 19th century. And for the past 10 years, I've been working on public parks, uh, which has also developed in me a great fascination and passion for a garden, as you may well know. It's a awesome garden, by the way. (laughs) I just love her garden. Anyway, go on. So I've become one of those people. Um, my background, I really started as an art historian and I did fine art at Goldsmiths. So I used to be a, a creative, as they like to call them. And then I actually moved into academia kind of sideways. So I, I was never on that kind of tribal direction you know, that lots of people are. Um, and now I work very much in academia, but also in the heritage sector. So I'm at in the world, with people, uh, with heritage groups and local community groups very often in projects, as well as writing those monographs and hanging out the uh, peer-reviewed uh, journal articles. Uh, <laughs>
0: don't remind me. but a readership of agree. so uh, <laughs> yeah, my dad
1: really likes mine, so you know that's good. that's good. My dad wrote the index for my monograph, and I think he was, he was oh. one of the three people who read it. Bless him. <laughs>
0: Yeah, dad deserves some award of some sort for tolerating all of our. Oh, my monographs so hard to write. <laughs> Joseph, you're next. Tell us about yourself.
2: Uh, well, I guess the first thing is I'm not really an academic or anything, but I, I'm one of those people who, uh, one of those burdensome undergraduates who takes on everyone else's problems and decides to make them their own, I guess. Um, and I just did... Well, I guess I've just finished a uh, very like a lot of time, very intense degree time, just helping people out. Um, I had a yeah, pay
0: of, big money, I would imagine,
2: big big. Money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine, it was Six very figure well figure salaries, and <laughs> everyone appreciated the work I did. Um,
0: they wrote you thank you cards, gave you roses, yeah. all that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah.
2: But um, yeah, I, I was. Uh, I, you know, one of these people who I think are present in lots of universities now, among undergraduate, who um, has some kind of role mediating between students and staff, and um, organising events and provisions and things. Who, you know, unfortunately, become kind of necessary, I guess. It wasn't all bad, I should say, as well. It was, some, it was really enjoyable, um, but also it was it was very humbling experience, to be honest. It was, very, it was not, not at all what I expected it to be, some things I like, had, well, to, had to deal with, I guess.
0: Well, you get to tell us a few of those things in very short <laughs> order. But <clears throat> I think what we should do is start with our first question. Uh, since we're talking about mental health issues in academia, this is a big, big, big topic, very taboo topic. Uh, I will say that when I did a call for speakers, um, it was pretty quiet, a lot of crickets, which I thought was interesting considering that it is the pervasive problem. If you look up mental health academia, just do a quick Google search. It is an explosion of articles. In fact, The Guardian has published quite a bit. Uh, mental health issues since at least 2014 within academia, not just students, but also staff, um, administrative requirements, etc. And those will be available on the show notes along with uh, a few more articles. But I think what, what we should do is maybe even before we dive into the first question, maybe just for the two of you, when we talk about mental health issues, what, what kind of issues are we talking about?
1: Katie? Well, if we're talking about um, academics or people who are working in the university sector, I think we're talking about an increasing sense of personal anxiety and instability in the workplace. So that the entire sector, uh, particularly in Britain, but actually it's a global problem, but particularly in Britain, is experiencing a, a, a decade at least, probably longer than that, of decreasing job security of increasing metrics, of change, constant change, just like we see in schools. You know, we've seen it happen to the the school education sector. And so knowing who you are, where you are, feeling secure in yourself, in your job, financially, professionally, that is all being eroded. And so for people who work um, in universities at every level, and it it really is every level from, you know, the, the junior researcher right up to the professor to people high up in management, they do not feel safe in their place in, in, in work. So I think that is like an, under, you know, an underlying cause of quite a lot of the, the chaos and the sense of anxiety that's going on in, in universities at the moment. Um, but I also think there's something particular about academia, which is this is head stuff. Academia is about things that go on in your head. Mm. And therefore, the impact of any kind of mental health challenge, whether it's... Um, it's you know, sort of diagnosable or it's, or it's transient or permanent, whatever it is, it's compounded by the very nature of, of academia that we live in our heads. And so it's very difficult to find ways out of it and to manage it when you're forced back into your head as part of your working life. Mm. Um, so I think there's kind of a, a weird, perfect storm that takes place in academia that makes things particularly Challenging, sure. And what about from the students' perspective, uh, Joseph? What what has been
0: your understanding of, of mental health concerns there?
2: Yeah, I think um, I just echo Katie in many ways. I think there's uh, an important sense in which this is what this kind of epidemic that we're experiencing as students as uh, or academics is in many ways a kind of broader phenomenon that is in, um, like society in general at the moment, uh, there is a lot more, um, like mental health has become a much bigger concern than it once was and a much more, is much more foregrounded than I think it's ever been possibly. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there is something also very peculiar about the academic context where, or, you know, where this is coming to a head, it feels like. I think there's something about the like, much larger numbers of people who are now going to university than ever before and for whom this is like their first time away from home. It's a very transitional and very liminal period for people who haven't really... There's a lot of new things going on in your life when you're like an 18 to 21 year old. And currently the prospects for those people at the end of it aren't really much much better than the, the academics who are teaching them. Um, when, when my generation's parents, if they went to university, they could be pretty sure they were going to get there were jobs and they were probably going to get a pretty good one if they went to university, whereas I don't think that's really, those sorts of hopes or aspirations just don't really exist for my cohort anymore. Mm. Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head because it's not even just for undergraduates. I say this as a, a PhD student who finished in, well, I was a PhD student who finished in 2016, and four years later, because we're settled because we have children, um, the job market is terrible it's really terrible uh, and so you have to think outside the box and unless you're prone to being able to think outside your head as as Katie put it, it, it can be even more distress distressing, which I suppose sort of leads me into one of my first questions: Are these mental health concerns new? Katie.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think they are new, but I think that they are more visible, more tangible and more acute. So I think that, like you were saying, the changing nature of higher education, it's, the fact it's become monetized, the fact it's become um, widely accessible, as Joseph said, lots of more people are going to university, but that is not delivering uh, loads more jobs at the end of it. So it's become... Weirdly, more competitive the more accessible it's become. And I just think there's something has changed in the way that people feel um, about education and about that period of their life, which means that instead of it being a chance to where you can make mistakes, a place where you can figure out where you're going, and if you screw up a little bit, that's okay, it's a good place to screw up, to a place where all risk is terrifying and dangerous, and the, the stakes are so much higher. So I think there are always, you know, that, that time of your life, as Joseph said, often for students, is a time of change, it's transient, uh, reinvention, and really trying to figure out your direction. It's always been that, but now the risks associated with that feel, whether or not they are, they feel so much more acute for people. Well, and I think, Joseph, I would
0: imagine you could relate to this because I know when I was a student, I could relate to it. One of the things that used to frustrate me when you think about all the money that goes into university expenses, whether you're on a student loan or whatever, is you're, you're dealing with your personal life, you're dealing with a lot of changes, and then you've got this big assignment. And then your lecturer turns to you and says, it's just a paper. And you're ready to, to punch them in the throat because you know it's not just a paper. It's mm-hmm. all the pressure behind it, knowing that the stakes are higher for you when you leave the school system, mm. knowing that if you don't have at least a 2-1 with those that are American listeners, so at least a B, B plus average, um, that you're, you know, that competitive edge isn't going to be helping you by any means. You know, do you have, do you have any um, experiences from your end that just kind of um, add to that? You don't yeah. think it's too personal by any means. Um,
2: I mean, what I'd say is like in, in terms of like in terms of that and the way in which these, um, these issues are new. It's not, like Katie said, it's not necessarily that we haven't been aware of stress and depression and anxiety and the like before, but I don't think it's ever been quite the case that they have been the necessity for success in this context that they, they seem to be now. The thing, like the thing about being in this this rat race, whether it's in higher education or academia or you know whatever other part of the job market at the moment, is that as you say, it's competitive and it means that you know some people are going to get firsts and some people are going to get thirds. That not everyone can win, and if you want to do that, you have to put yourself through this kind of mental trauma that is pretty much non-optional if you want to do well if you want to stand out from, uh, from the crowd and obviously this is just like this is just insane in literal sense this is uh, an absurd way to run your your research your education system Well, I think- oh
1: go on katie sorry go on oh just one cat i wonder if if that is the case if you if it is absolutely compulsory to do it but what I think is we have not brought up a, and a, this isn't a recent thing um, you know successive generations we have not raised people to have a sense of their own shape before they go to university we Chug them through school, and it's about A level grades, as though that was the only thing in the world that ever mattered. And
0: again, and course, for American students, people sorry. are going to be listening. Like, what's an A level? What's a B level? <laughs> um, an A level would I'd say is the equivalent of the SATs, which is hell on earth, FYI. So think SATs, and you actually need those to get to university. So on yeah. anyway, go on.
1: And it's all numerical, and it's all focused on that grade or that number, and you know, and and we do that, and then we kind of dump them in a the university and go right, crack on, and actually what i'd love to be able to do with my students of any level and particularly postgraduates is give them a confidence to say this it is really just a paper or this is a paper which is not playing to my strengths and it never will and this does not define me and it doesn't so so it becomes about in the same way we think sometimes about our careers this is a job this is a, a task i'm doing and we have a much better In our jobs, it's kind of objectifying that and going, that's just this thing over there that I have to deal with. It's a task I may achieve, I may not. Rather than internalizing it in the way that people, I think, feel they must do. And I think we're probably all contributing to that all the time, even when we mean well, as to making people feel that this is the most important thing that will ever happen to you. Mm. And it's not.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think, We also need to throttle back just a little bit um, because I think you're making some very excellent points in terms of, you know, how we need to retrain our way of thinking because as both of you have mentioned, these issues in terms of instability within academia, not just for students, but also all the way up for early career researchers like myself who are thinking, seriously thinking about transitioning out and probably will have to transition out, that these problems, COVID-19, I feel kind of, Pulled the lid off of something that was already existent, and I think all of us would agree that the economic downturn of 2008 really contributed towards the downward spiral that had already been existent before then. And I'm just wondering—well, it's not even so much a wonder, but I'd be curious to know your thoughts if, if people are fully aware that this. Economic downturn in two thousand and eight never really, it never really fixed itself. It was, it's like it started, it went down, and we thought it would go back up, and never really went back up. And then COVID nineteen happened, and now there's a hiring freeze across all of academia worldwide. And I'm just wondering, you know, what it, as a student, as a as a lecturer yourselves, what are the things that you've noticed, at least over the course of the past decade? Joseph,
2: I, I, I think you should probably start. With you were eight.
0: You were Like yeah, What was, was going on.
2: You know, a child playing <laughs>
0: in your backyard. You were like, oh my gosh, I can't
1: wait till I'm 18. <laughs> I can, I can, I can go. I mean, one of the things that's that's been very noticeable is that the the career itself, the career route itself, has changed, and I think it was very tempting 2008 to say. Hold on, you know. Mm, I remember that one. Yeah, everyone's always told, just hold on, just keep going. Things will get back to normal. And normal, they're meaning some kind of idyllic ivory tower that existed on a campus in 1965. Like, it does, that job doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's not that you're failing to get there. That's, they're not there. Like you say, there's a hiring, there's these hiring freezes. That's not accidental. That isn't, oh, gosh, we don't, oh, well, maybe we'll hire 50 lecturers next year. No, they won't. know, yeah, This is a new model, and it's not all to do with money. It's not all to do with 2008. But the nature of the job has changed. It's not there uh, in the way that you know, people imagine what an academic job is. Um, it's very frustrating when you talk to people outside academia. Because they still think it's like something out of *Brideshead Revisited*. Um, yeah,
0: and I'm in *Pride and Prejudice*. Did you know? Yeah. Now that I live in Oxfordshire, that's what
1: we do. Uh-huh. We're we buttresses. fantasy, um, or even you know, educating reason, I think we all wear corduroy and just have a lovely time talking about Proust. And we do. You know, Scoop <laughs> <laughs> yourself, um, but that those roles don't exist. And what COVID's done, you know, on the back of of that crisis, that financial crisis, is that. Instead of just the early careers and um, those in, in temporary contracts carrying this burden, it's, they've all been ditched, right? They don't even mm. have a job. And the burden has passed to those higher up the food chain. So all those professors who thought they could, you know, weedle out the rest of their professional careers, just doing some research and using junior teachers to, to do all their teaching for them in admin, They're now having to teach online. They're now having to redesign their courses. They've lost their research leave. You know, so I think what COVID's done is shifted all of that burden even further up that academic food chain. So
0: so it's interesting you say this. And and Joseph, you know, my guess is because you're coming up from the student perspective, and I'm really glad you're here, is, you know, learn from us, right? (laughs) Learn from the mistakes we made. I mean, you know, one thing that I found this, this shift that's been really interesting is, you know, I know from my own personal experience, the job market's been brutal. You know, one of the messages I was told is, if you have a PhD, you know, from Oxford, you'll go anywhere. And and I'm not discrediting a PhD from Oxford. It's an incredible privilege to have. Um, but what, what I was so surprised by is that when I finished, I was competing against people who also had PhDs from Oxford, and we're all competing for the same jobs. And if you're not from Oxford, you're from Yale, you're from Cambridge, you're from Harvard. And one of the things I noticed is that... Uh, the jobs that were available weren't going to work for somebody who has children, who needs to eat, who needs to make sure that they can pay for childcare and all the important things that you need. A uh, one-year contract isn't going to fly. A uh, six-month contract isn't going to fly. I need a permanent contract. Well, permanent contracts are becoming a thing of the past. And one thing, you know, and I've talked to friends of mine who, who were in permanent positions and they would say rightly so I feel, I feel bad for you. And, and that must be terrible. And now that I've had time to really think about alternative career paths, what I'm noticing is just as you said, Katie, they're going, I thought I had tenure. I'm not sure if I'm going to have tenure a year from now. I don't even know if I'm going to get paid a year from now. And, and the other thing that's really the kicker is if they lose their job, which is becoming more increasingly likely, there's a very good likelihood those departments won't fill those slots. Or if they do fill the slots, it is going to be, again, more temporary contracts. And I think there's this desperation there of holding on to this dream. But as Katie, you rightly said, what dream? This has turned into a nightmare. And I think that's the thing that, that is really problematic, which leads us back to mental health problems. And on top of all that, uh, Senor Trump has suspended the H-1B visa which uh, for those of you who don't know about the H1B visa, I've been to the visa process, not in the US, but from the UK side, you need these golden tickets in order to be able to work. And if you suspend these visas, that makes the, the job market even even more precarious. So I wasn't sure if, if either of you had any thoughts on that or something similar you'd like to contribute. Joseph, keep it so quiet. Well,
2: so quiet. <laughs> um as you can imagine I don't have much experience really traveling to other countries for work yet uh, but it looks looks like it might be a, could be a important prospect for me um, by the time've I've left um, it's a difficult one for me to like properly it's not something I can speak to from my own experience but it does I mean, all I could really say I, is
0: I guess what I can say is how are you in? As students, are you aware of the issues that are going on further up? I guess that's the better way mm. to put it. Or is this all new information?
2: In terms of like migration, I, I, I don't know. Not even imagine.
0: migration. I mean, just the precarity from the top level. Oh,
2: yeah. Mm. Obviously, these are people who I think it's it's like an open secret, isn't it? I mm. mean, you've been saying about this thing. It's like
0: an affair where you know two professors are like probably, but you're like shouldn't be. I was going to
2: say it's like a zombie, really. It's like zombie professors, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this this thing is um, crawling, like dragging itself along under some I don't know whatever power is left in it um, since. 2008. I don't know if how I if that's like a great place to pinpoint that, but it, yeah, I guess along with a number of other kind of institutions is this, you know, this headless chicken, this this weird zombie thing, just keeping on going, and it's obviously like unsustainable. I mean, as as you said, there's there's no doubt that there'll be more jobs on the line, but I I don't see there being um, a decrease in the amount of students that universities hope to admit or, you yeah. know, have pay for their master's or PhDs or, you know, or just undergraduate degrees. And it's only going to just, it's, it's, it's just so, it's so crazy. Obviously, there's just going to be even more work for even fewer staff who are, Already been complaining about how how much how overworked they are doing these um, you know marking however many essays or teaching however many lectures, but at the same time the students are also saying like this is you're expecting a bit too much of us you know and like to say these are apparently the smartest people in our society and we've got. You know, lecturers teaching too much, but students being taught uh, lectures they're not re- they don't really want, and lecturers who don't have time to teach them. Like this is, it's just stupid.
1: It is a. I, I'm really <laughs> interested into, like I was saying, how aware people are because I think it's this awful, grotesque relationship that's being forged between academic staff and students, because I don't think either of those two groups are actually the reason for these problems. I think they're being orchestrated from a, a commercial management pos- position, which sees what stu- why well, they want to cram student bums on seats and they don't really think about that individual student's needs because they can't. And the entire burden... Of delivering what those students need, these young people in a particular moment in their lives, both intellectually and pastorally, is falls upon people who are actually hired based upon a research output. It is the most extraordinary thing. It's like hiring someone to be an actor because they make good cheese. It's like that. It's a ridiculous nonsense, mm. and it's awful because actually, almost every—I would say almost every—because there's always an exception—but almost every uh, academic I know in any sector in any institution I've worked feels a deep commitment to students and they are being pushed through the nature of the 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 assessment the ref which is a, kind of, it was a research assessment um, to really be focusing on that to the detriment of of all else and they know it so it's terrible See, so you know the students you want to help and you want to have that luxury of even just a 10-minute conversation with them in a chair about what they're writing and why they're writing that way and what they think and like you can't do any of it there's no room for it so that's you don't have time time. you don't have the time and it's not cruelty and it's not because you don't care it's because you will lose your job if you spend too much time doing that
0: well and I can remember when I my last teaching commitment I made um I remember one of my students um, saying, you know, it would have been really nice if we could have had extra stuff, you know, more writing experience. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that I was getting paid 24 pounds a week to teach that course. I can't eat off 24 pounds a week. So anything extra that you want, I am doing for free on top of everything else. How do you explain that to a student? Like, girls got to eat. I have a kid. (laughs) You know, how do you, how do you, and they don't know that because they don't know that the money is not getting filtered down to the staff, which is a whole nother thing that we, I think, should at least talk to, talk about Mm -hmm. for a little bit. Um, The money's going elsewhere. The staff are the last crumbs come to the staff. You only get paid for the hour you're in class. You don't actually get paid for the two days it takes to prepare for it, which is a whole whole nother ball of wax, which leads me to my, uh, let's say, uh, next question because one of the issues, again, in academia, and it, this is really common in North America, particularly in the U.S., is this idea of adjunct professor. Joseph, are you familiar with, with what an adjunct professor is?
2: Uh, no, I, I think, is this the, like a temporary contract or something? Like ah, yes. Or something like it that? Is,
0: is the beautiful temporary contract where they, they say, well, we can't give you a permanent post, but we can put you on a list. It's kind of like being a glorified substitute teacher. And mm. if a class is available and we have enough students to fill seats then we will have you come in for the class. And in pretty much every situation as an adjunct professor, you only get paid a set fee. So let's say uh, U.S. universities run on semester systems. semester can run for about three or four months. You might only get paid $1,000 for that one class for four months, which isn't going to go very far. So what ends up happening is you take on another teaching class and another class and another class so that you can make just enough money to maybe pay for your rent, maybe. But what we're finding is that, um, you know, as Katie rightly said, these people are very dedicated to their students and they want to be able to give the most of it and they also need to be able to sleep. So what is happening, and The Guardian has done a very good job uh, talking about this, is that adjunct professors are trying to figure out how to make extra money so that they can continue to work with their students. But job precarity has become a very lived experience for adjuncts and that many of them are living hand to mouth on very poor contracts. Several of them are living out of cars. And according to a relatively recent article by The Guardian, some are turning to more extreme measures like sex work, that's right, sex work, because they cannot afford their living costs. And I just wanted to know, um, Katie, I'm sure you've got thoughts on this. How do you think these working conditions contribute to mental health issues?
1: Well, I think we can all kind of guess if you're forced to. I mean, I think it. I think that so. it's
0: kind of self-explanatory. <laughs> so keep, but I think the system yeah. as a whole, maybe in terms of of how it's established, you know, a how is this justifiable, and mm. b you know again talking about what Joseph said, how is this even sustainable? How is
1: it ethical? Mm. Well, I think I, I don't know if this is actually a particularly popular position on this, but my increasingly my my point of view is that. We, as, as professionals in academia, whether you're an adjunct or you are a head of department, right, we all have a responsibility to some extent for our own working culture. And I think there is something very telling about people's willingness to persist in a sector that is doing them harm, that is, is doing itself harm, that is this zombie sector, like Joseph said. Um, and to want to do it to such a degree that you will... Put yourself in physical and medical risk by, you know, through something like prostitution or whatever else you're doing, or working through the night when you, you know, not getting sleep and anything like that. That there is a point at which you are you are part of the system, even if you are a victim of it. That you are helping it to survive. And I understand that people really, they they want to be in academia, but we've really got to address the idea of what is, why do we want to be there? If we're talking about mental health, you know, mm. you're sitting in a therapist's chair and somebody says to you, why are you selling your body, selling away all your life, putting yourself in the risk of, you know, assault, if not worse, for a type of job? Like there's something bigger there, which is to do with our ideas about social status and what it means to be an academic, what it means to have a degree, what it what our parents expect, what we count as white-collar work, huge, you know, huge number of, of factors mm. that mean we put academic achievement on a pedestal. And to the extent that somebody is prepared to sort of pedal underground doing all these other things just to look like they have an academic career. Because if you're not earning enough money to put food on the table, you do not have an academic career, I'm afraid. It, you have a problem. That's it. you could well, be an academic, but you don't have an academic career. You might, it's almost like you're an amateur academic. And mm-hmm. I, nobody wants to talk that way. But you know what? I'm not prepared to reduce myself to that kind of destitution, desperation, just to be able to say I'm an academic. There is a better life out there for every single person who's in that situation. But we, if we do that, then we are also contributing to that system because no one has to pay us more. You know, no one. We do, we're not taking on the system. We're not defending the people who come after us. We are actually perpetuating it.
0: Well, and I think I think this leads to another thing. But before we get into that, Joseph, do you have any? Yeah, thoughts? I was
2: just going to say. Yeah, I I kind of feel like pushing back against that slightly. I I think that there's not really so much difference between that sort of like um, anxiety that you're describing there as what is probably familiar to a bunch of people, academic or not, in other white-collar jobs at the moment. As in, but like the thing about being in the, the rat race is that as long as you're competing against everyone else, it doesn't matter how well you're doing. Even if you're on top and you're, you've are you got a tenured or something, you, you're doing really well somewhere, that you've got your PhD from Oxford or whatever, you're still always you're still you 're still competing against people you know a few steps behind you and you always you 're still looking over your shoulder and living in the the fear that you're going to be overtaken in the exactly the same way as you would be in any other field and this is like very i think this creates like a very bizarre condition that it's not necessarily um, to do with the glamour of being an academic, but if you're in that position in whatever job, then then you're you're floating along somehow, whilst everyone else is sinking under the stress and the anxiety. Then you have a perverse incentive to let that that kind of float by as well, because this the the suffering that other people going through even you yourself as well as long as it you you know it's other people who are falling ill to it and not you or not quite as much you do have an interest in not doing anything about that Hmm. these conditions that still let you um retain your your tiny grasp on you know this vanishingly small sliver of income, or whatever it is that you're you've attached yourself to, mm. and that is the sense in which I've always found it to be. But like you're saying, I the teach the people who the teachers I've had, the lecturers I've met in person have always been, you know nothing but the kindest people and most, you know, most interest, most interested in. Um, you know, doing their best for me. But it's just, I It's just, um, I mean,
0: it's just normal, we'll, way, yeah. we'll lose those people. As I know, Katie, you had said, you know, the smart people leave. Yeah. That's really what happens. And, and it's something that I, you know, it's not to say that those who stay are not intelligent. They are obviously and they're in there in a very privileged position. They know that. But those of us who haven't been able to get our way up the ladder, we're going to peace out. And we're going to leave not because we, we want to leave, but we're going to leave because it, we've been forced into a corner and we've been dealt a hand that we it's not a very nice hand and and we have to be practical, right?
2: No, and I think I think you're also pointing to something, as with what I've just mentioned, like the 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 long and short of it is, especially with mental health conditions in particular, they you, you know if you've ever had or known anyone who's struggled with something like this. It is like intimately, uniquely personal to you in the sense that like, in one sense, this includes the way that the responsibility for this problem, as well as the rewards from overcoming it, always fall on your shoulders and no one else's. And that kind of individualization of it is the way in which it can weirdly be fine if you're, you're managing to not do anything about the conditions which all of you and your colleagues are suffering under.
0: Yeah, which I guess can lead us to our next question. For those that are suffering, right, and we'll talk a little bit more about silent sufferers and the extent that that can happen and the extremes that, that can manifest as a result of that, what sort of things are in place right now for students and staff in terms of providing services for mental health concerns? Joseph I know you've you've got quite a lot of experience with that
2: yeah oh yeah yeah i I yeah part of my I spent, I spent a long time trying to organize provisions and uh, events to support people and one of the strange things that I found very that it was very difficult to kind of appreciate was the the way that i uh, I remember when I started doing it i we tried to do Events and things like speakers talking about what you can do about your, your mental health or like, you know, self care or whatever, all sorts of stuff. And many, many of the times people just wouldn't turn up, even though yeah, they'd, yeah. they'd be really, they'd be really into it or like vocal about it and, you know, in support. They just, the thing about how off putting like additional, Um, things that are going to take up time to combat a problem, which is about not having enough time is also like just paradoxical.
0: Or, Uh, or God forbid, what if somebody sees you walk in to mental (laughs) health? No, seriously. I mean, you know, where are you going? Oh, mental health thing. Yeah. Are you going in there?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, And then there's also this kind of, I mean, I've seen a lot of universities around the UK now are trying to up their well-being game, I guess, in some way or other by having more access to counselling services or things along these lines. And I mean, the 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 thing is, there's, we're not. You're, it's not a problem that's going to be solved by uh, you know just employing enough enough. Counselors to satisfy to make the machine still (laughs) still go on. It's uh, it's it's just not a satisfactory solution. And even even if it was, it would still seem quite wrong that we we felt like it was okay that people still underwent this kind of process. But as long as there there are enough uh, you know counterbalancing measures, it's still it's okay. For us to hmm.
1: keep on doing this, hmm. Katie, thoughts? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. Because I'm the thing is, today, 2020, there is so much more provision in every single higher education institute that addresses both student and staff mental health than there was 20 years ago. Right? There just there is the provision is is vast actually, and I would say,
2: and and in many cases the resources are excellent. Yeah, They're of the highest standard.
1: Yeah, and the Open University obviously is a p- particular kind of animal for anybody in the US. It's, a, it's always focused on distance learning, for people returning to um, university, perhaps people from non traditional kind of um, academic backgrounds. So we have always been, you know, sort of at the forefront of that kind of support. But I have to say, I, I totally agree with Joseph that this is a kind of an act of mitigation rather than actually looking at the system that produces the problems. And I, I have to, I'm have i not sure where I stand on this at the moment because in the recent years I've really noticed an increase in the number of people studying um, almost like a therapy. Right? So th- actually they've been told, oh, do a, do a degree or do some studies and that, that will improve your mental health. Take handled. some oh. time out. That's, that seems to be yeah. the phrase, right? And actually this is, to do anything intellectual, any of this head work, um, and then to submit something and have somebody put a grade on it and say this is good that is bad is very often the absolute worst thing that i think should be somebody should be experiencing when they they're suffering with a mental health problem there there are other activities but this idea of you know successive assignments submitted that somebody grades. And I always have this challenge with my students. I have to explain to, I'm grading the paper, I'm not grading you. But it does not feel like that when you're a student.
0: Well, and I've got to add to that because um, I can remember some years ago, I had a student who came from the US and I'll try to make this as anonymous as possible. But let's just say she came to do the study abroad experience and she did not realize that she had come to the hardest university in the world and was under the impression that my class was going to be a easy A. And last time I checked, nothing at Oxford is easy. So uh, long story short, she failed. And she had it in her head that I didn't like her. I said, well, What I didn't like is that you play plagiarize. So that's why you failed. Um, but that is very different than you as a person. And I think trying to relay that to somebody who, you know, Joseph, as you rightly said, if you've been sort of cocooned and you're not used to being in a system where you're taught to necessarily think for yourself or have your own opinion, which is a whole another another ball game and then you're thrust into an environment where you have to be an individual and you have to have thoughts and you have to be able to support them, that can make the issues that much more, you know, troubling. And for her, she found it uh, a very hard pill to swallow. Sorry. That was a ghost. It was a ghost.
2: <laughs> <For> a <visitor. laughs>
0: but and anyway, that Special said yes. I think Yeah, special guest we brought in, our ghost, (laughs) Casper. But um, I will say that there does seem to be, either way you look at it, this pervasive sense of guilt, right? Uh, Guilt from the students in the sense that they want to be able to put their best foot forward so that they can be competitive in the job market. Guilt from the academic perspective that we need to be able to work long hours for free, uh, put up with short-term contracts, be willing to move almost anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. And Katie, you touched on something really important, that it's not so much necessarily just the students and the staff who may sometimes feel like enablers, right? Because we're feeding into the system that is basically, the best way I saw it is uh, trying to work your way through academia is like having Stockholm syndrome, except you're not sure that the kidnapper wants you. And that can be uh, a serious issue. And so I guess what I'd like to talk about is, why do you think the university system has inevitably created such an environment and what message do you think that sends to future employers or those who are already working within the university system? Thoughts?
1: Joseph?
2: Um Yeah, well, I, I think, as I've said before, ultimately with mental health issues, the, you, all, you inevitably, and I don't think it, it has to be this way for the moment, you inevitably receive the feeling that the responsibility for this problem is yours alone. And in turn when you're a university, there's a very there's a very big a asymmetry between you and the university in the sense that only you uh like only you will face the consequences of your the grades you get at the end of this. And the university all they have to do to excuse themselves and to rid themselves of the tiny problem that you are your you might be creating is is weight and that's something that students just don't can't do they don't have time for and they have to push themselves as hard as they can often if they are is if, if, if you feel like you need to stand out from the crowd because employers know that Everyone has a university degree today, and only therefore only the best degree will suffice. You you have to play into that feeling of responsibility mm. because hey. yeah yeah go on sorry yeah you you have to play into that feeling in the sense that you have to show that you were you know the grade you got at the end was you know a result of your Individual hard work and everything that happened over three or four years of your degree. Um, and, you know, omitting despite the, the whatever mental uh, condition that brought about or was done through.
1: Yeah, Katie, thoughts? Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting what Jose was saying about like students can't wait. And universities can wait. Incidentally, I don't think that the that universities don't care what grades their students get, but there's a whole other metric hell that's going on, which is, you know, you can't Yeah, because yeah, sure. they, do,
0: they do care. If you don't do yeah. well, it doesn't reflect well on the university, and then they don't, uh, you know, they don't get the big bucks. No, so. but, no they, they
2: but in the end, the people who actually have to care for their conditions are the students, and there's a very strange situation that students find themselves in where they're It's very ambiguous whether they are like the consumer of their education or Mm -hmm. the product, and in that sense, like it's, I know it it feels very weird at times. Like, what sort of care students should can expect from the university?
1: Yeah, it is. That that's what's happened in the last twenty years. That's the thing that's changed. It's that weird. What the hell is this relationship? Mm. Um, Because we didn't have that feeling before. And now you do. And should I fight? Am I letting myself down if I don't fight my university? And yet it's your university that's supposed to be working collaboratively with you in your process of education to help you grow and go where you want to go. And you don't want to be seen as a problem, right? Yeah, and the whole thing's become surreal. And I love the zombie idea. (laughs) But one, you know, you said, and you asked, how have universities inevitably created this? Um, And I think... I don't like the inevitable, I, there's different ways we could do it, but if there was one thing I would do to totally change the system and I think would have a huge impact is stop churning people through the high, the school to higher education, you know, treadmill. That when, Ken Robinson, the educationist Ken Robinson talks about this in lower level education as well at high schools and stuff, that we basically treat people um, like based on their manufacture date. So, hey, you were born in 1992, so you will go to university at this point and then you will graduate and then you will do this at this point. And I don't think it's not working and it's a ridiculous system to just force people through. So they can't wait and they have to make decisions that they may not wish to make at that point in their life. And they choose the wrong degrees and they choose, they study something because their parents think it sounds smart or because they think it's a safe job. None of the things that actually... A confident, mentally healthy, robust person would necessarily do. Um, and we're creating the chaos in that entire process. You know, UCAS forms and people ticking boxes and and third choice and second choice and the battle. Big, be- it's it's ludicrous. We're talking about human lives, mm. um, and everybody knows. You know, it's not a career ladder; it's a climbing wall, and The number of times I've sat in front of a new intake of of first-year fresher students and thought, you know, three or four of you, I just want you to go home just for yourselves right now and figure out if you really want to be here. Mm. They're spending a huge amount of money, all this mental cost, for something that maybe in the end they look and go, oh, I never really wanted to do that. That's not me. I don't know what that is. Um, And it would be really easy to say, look, People should be able to work without having gone to university for a few years. They should be able to pace their own life. They own their life. They should have that choice. Mm. And suddenly all the pressure and the heat and the anxiety bleeds out of the system. And if if I could just add
0: to that, because I think, you know, we haven't really talked about what sort of mental problems. We have dabbed into this idea of depression and anxiety, right? But I think... The real thrust of this is that we can also get to a point where we reach absolute extremes. And when we're dealing with mental extremes, at some point, people try to find an out. And for those that are so far down the rabbit hole, that out is suicide. And it's not a word I like to mention. It's not something I like to talk about at home. It's not something I like to think about. But it is what it is. And unfortunately, it has come up in the news over the past several years, especially with regards to professorial workloads, and this definitely includes students, by all means. Uh, recently we had professors like Will Moore from the University of Arizona and Dr. Malcolm Anderson from Cardiff University who are part of a growing list of silent sufferers who have been taught to keep their heads down and keep working, right, to be these zombies, as you mentioned, Joseph. And in the case of Dr. Anderson, he had informed the university on several occasions that this was too much. This, this workload was getting crazy and by the time he died, he had walked in, he came into his office at 6.35 in the morning, saw a stack load of papers, and what they found after he threw himself out of a building, he was responsible for 600 students. He was expected to grade 418 exam papers, and on top of that, prepare for the next day of lectures, and I want, this to be a discussion. What is it going to take for universities to finally start listening to their staff and their students? I'm not just saying, okay, we'll put that on a form and then we'll stick it in a file. I'm talking, how do we put in these measures way ahead of time so that this doesn't become another statistical figure that we have to put on our roster that we have to, you know, nobody should have to die as a result of a workload. That's crazy. But I can understand if you're so far down the rabbit hole, it's, it, it, it happens. It happens to people. And I, I'd be very curious to know your opinions on that. Mm.
1: Well, what it comes down to is we've taken on all these extra students and we're, they're not, in the UK, it's not matched with funding from national government, right? So there's an increased workload. The whole thing about fees, I know how students feel about fees and, and many academics too, but they do not cover the costs of our universities as they stand today. You know, the, the, the economic model is broken. So what that, what that particular individual needed and what that department needed and what every department needs is more personnel to match the increased number of students. HR. That's what it comes down to. It's, it's hiring. And if you keep hiring on temporary contracts and churning through and people leave, they drop off, um, you don't actually build up a workforce of experience, of balance, of um kind of collegiate cooperation um we need more academic personnel in our universities um full stop because even i mean if you want to take leave if you want to take research leave it's very often not backfilled. there is there is no capacity in the system and students quite rightly expect that their assignments to be marked you know Delays in that create anxiety on the other side of the, the model. But it's, it's a real, it's a basic numbers equation. That individual and individuals like him are overworked because they're doing the job of three people. There should be two more people in that department. And that's that.
0: Joseph, you were nodding your head.
2: Yeah, uh, I think it's perhaps strange from, uh, from the perspective of a student, especially if you're a student in a country where your fees are much higher than they are here, that what you're paying for in no way goes anywhere near covering the cost of your education. Um, but that this, that honestly, I'm... I think I'm it's more a bit hesitant.
1: sickening,
0: isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really disgusting, to be honest. Yeah, um, I agree. And that it, it, just, it still costs so much anyway, to be honest. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, you know, why would you why would you create your next generation of graduate students based on who can afford to pay? I don't know. Anyway, I, 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 as I've said before, I don't feel like this system is very sustainable, but I don't see why change would happen anytime soon and I, I'm fairly cynical in that I feel like it's probably going to get worse before it gets better to be honest.
0: Mm, I think we'd all agree on that though. I think that that's- I think there's a really
1: yeah. you know in practical level it's a really straightforward thing that every single student can do when they are looking at institutions because at the moment you get your fancy Brochure, and they'll mm. show people laughing, giggling, and drinking coffee outside some shishi bar that's been built on campus. Or, 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 where the, yeah. where the money gonna say,
0: goes? I was going to say, in my case, uh, when I went to Sussex, and this was my very conservative father, we had a brochure, and um, my university wanted to. Save money is very eco friendly. And they said, uh, rather than shower by yourself, shower with a friend. And then there was like a cartoon picture to accompany it. And my dad went, What incident is this? And I went, I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> but so. yeah, I
1: mean, if, when you're going around looking at universities, if you're a student list or a prospective student or a parent, do not, do not take the official tours and ask the numbers question. Ask what's your ratio of academic staff to the students. that'll tell you everything you need to know. You don't need to know if the rooms are en suite. You don't need to know if there's a student hub because no one knows what the hell that means anyway. You don't need to know that. You need to know where your money's going and it shouldn't be going into buying a gym or property development. As or of- pool, that relaxing pool somewhere. Yeah, because mm-hmm. what you're not doing is you're not buying from a holiday brochure. You know, you're not booking some kind of lifestyle experience. And if you go to the splash page of any university um, and want to find their library, you want to find their academic stuff, you, give it a go. Ten years ago, you could do that. They were there to, to help you navigate university. Now it is a marketing bonanza. Mm. Um, the other question you can ask is what's your marketing budget and how does that compare mm. to your library budget? You know, Wait, ask the, I was going to say, I don't
0: even know if the students given those tours are going to know that.
1: No. I don't think they would. They probably won't, but then I think you should be <laughs> writing to the university and asking them that. You know, you're part of... Think of it like Tesco. You don't just yeah. take you know, in Tesco marketing for granted. You go, oh, it's a company, it's selling me something. Um, and that's what really, if you want your to know where your money's going, it should be going to that teaching experience. That's the everyday of your life. That's what you take away at the end of it. You don't take the gym with you. So ask those kind of questions.
2: At the same yeah. time, though, I think there's a very strange way in which I think for a lot of students, um, going to university is actually an important sort of simply a kind of lifestyle experience in a way, especially in the UK where something like half of um, secondary or high school students will go to university. It's often not something you really think about and it's more to do with, can be more to do with this kind of, this rite of passage into adulthood rather than anything else. So, no, but you're not paying. That's not what your fees are for, right? No, no, but I, I know at the same, I would have sympathy with students who, especially like when you're looking around those campuses, you're 16, 17. I, I have a lot of sympathy for someone that age not really knowing what they're signing up for.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a really good point. I know when I was looking at university, it was, you know, it was a stepping stone, right? This is what you do is when you finish, you go to university, right? Um, but I think you, you make a really good point, uh, Joseph. You said something when we were having a discussion, you know, by email way before we um, started recording. You said that the ghost of care and education in academia at the moment thrives on the intimate, fundamentally personal experience of, these struggles in terms of, of mental health concerns, which often leads us to assume our own isolated responsibility for causing and curing our problems, excuring the burdens heaped by sexism, racism, elitism, etc., which converges with the current bands of education in the university space, which is a lot of words going on here. But I want you to unpack that a little bit and tell us what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, thank you for yeah, embarrassing me there and making me sound like Then I'm going to read
0: your diary and, yeah. um,
2: uh, and you
0: <laughs> like who you don't like. Yeah.
2: Um, I didn't. I don't mean anything particularly complicated. As I've said before, um, this is the thing about mental health is that it is really uniquely individual to you and your experience. And you will know that there isn't anyone else who can, who you can, who can understand what you've been through. Um, and that can be very that can be very isolating. Um, but I think it, with reference to the like the politics of it, I think it's really dangerous in a way. I was unusual in the sense that because of my role in my college, I got to talk to all sorts of peoples different experiences with uh, their mental health in a way that none of them ever did. They were often they only had that their own experience and I think this is really this can be very damaging because there's a you know it is fundamentally your problem and there's a feeling that the only person that's gonna be it's all. It's only your fault. It's only you that can can make it better as well. And as someone who whose role was about caring for other people, and I can imagine as a lecturer as well, you might feel this way that that can be really hard as well because when when you're dealing with someone who's depressed or who has an eating disorder of some sort, there isn't. Like in a fundamental way, there isn't anything you can really do for them. Like you can hold your hand out for them, but you can't get better for them. And this individualistic way that we experience mental health is, I think, especially from my perspective, where you know I got to see like a bunch of different people who. From all sorts of different places and backgrounds, who, who are dealing with these things, I think this really hides the way that it's not just like, the reason you're experiencing this problem. It's not just because you're having a hard, you know, it, you're having a hard time at university. But often there's so many other things at play to do with. How you're like negotiating, trying to uh, deal with this, you know, this this workload, but you you've also got to try and um, live up to some stereotype or other to do with your your femininity or your your sexuality or whatever ethnic background you're from. Whether in these things just compound compound the issue you know they make it so much more complex and they make it feel even more unique even though at the same time they're the things that that show how you're connected to so many more people than you realize who are dealing with these issues
0: yeah and katie you know kind of stepping away from that for just a second for those of us who decide to take the plunge and go you know what this isn't gonna work I got to find another option. One thing that has come up time and time again when talking to individuals, either by force or by circumstance, have had to leave academia is how happy they are. And this isn't just a one-off <laughs> comment. Several people, and I kid you not, have, have made a point of telling me, I didn't ask, they just told me. They said, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm really happy and I just feel this need to let you know. Katie, since you found yourself, you know, essentially saying the same thing, uh, why Why is
1: that? I think it's about self-esteem. And I think um, you know, your sort of Stockholm Syndrome idea is really powerful because when you're inside academia, it's a closed world. It really is its own little world. I'm sure other professions are the same. But all the rules are set and maintained and perpetuated by the same people and you have to toe the line. It's Emperor's New Clothes. Nobody can say we're all naked. And you it's it's a kind of it's an abusive system it's abusive relationships i was thinking the other day you know what kind of other highly trained professional job would you be expected to pay your own airfare to go to a a conference conference right and pay to be the speaker like i gotta pay you 150 pounds to speak like what well pay for your own illustrations in a book that you have to produce in order to have the job it is part of your job you know you're made to feel in academia like crap. You know, you're, you're made to feel tiny. That's how it works. You're a small fish. You and you don't ask questions. You should be appreciative you even gotten to that conference. Yeah. yeah and how dare good. you have any self-esteem? How dare you think you might have any value if I don't give it to you? And, and I'll grade you every three years on your research output. And maybe it'll be a three or a three star or a four. Maybe it won't be a four and it'll be a two. And ooh, you know, And it just messed people up. And what you realize is actually for all this language of we need to be professional and commercial in the university sector. If we really were, <laughs> it would be very different. It only worked one way, that commercialization. So when people get out of universities and they have all these skills and they are professional and they're competent and articulate and good at critical thinking and brilliant at grammar and they <laughs> and they go off into the real world outside academia and people value them. And I think their self-esteem goes through the roof because it is no longer an abusive system. So that's what I found that outside academia, the rules are very different. And you might not be making huge amounts of money, you might not be top of the tree, but it's a it's a more even playing field. You get the rules, and the rules work both ways. And you get paid more. Frankly, Isn't that nice? that sounds universally nice. you get paid more outside academia. Because academia has has not kept up with the world out there. Mm -hmm. So at the age of, you know, if you're kind of 45 or something and you're a professional uh, and you, whether you work in law or you get, you know, working for the NHS or an administrator or management, you're going to be earning more than you are if you're an academic and they let you have a weekend.
2: (gasps) Because often...
1: it's a job. <laughs> it's not a way of life. This idea is like education must be a vocation and you must give up all joy. And no, I didn't become a nun. I became a historian. Mm. So you, outside academia, you get a weekend, you get holidays, uh, you get treated. You get a pension. You get old people pension. You get, Who would have thought that would be sexy, right? I'm telling and, you. And you can move because it isn't, a cartel in the way that the university sector is. So if your company is treating you badly and you're good at your job, you move to a different company. In British higher education, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You're still in the same system. You're still trapped in that research excellence framework. You're still not going to have, you know, they won't insure your books in your office, you know, your working conditions are rubbish. And some institutions are a bit better on some things and not so good, but you're still in the same system. Mm. And that's a real, you really feel like you're trapped well, where you go, what you do, this is the deal. And out there, that isn't the case. And I think that's one of the main reasons people feel so good. They take charge of their life. They find a sense of agency and purpose and self-esteem. And it's all good. Yeah. I've
2: often gotten this feeling that um, when you're learning, I guess, low, a bit low down the chain. Academics kind of look down on life outside that bubble as well.
1: I think they're bitter. I genuinely think they're
2: better.
1: <laughs> I do think they do, but I think it's part of that Emperor's New Closing. It's, it's part of the lie that they tell themselves to make it okay. You know, mm-hmm. this is awful, but at least I'm an academic. Um, and that makes them feel better. And actually, if you can break that, you know, I think you're totally right, Joseph. It's snobbery to it. If you can break that and you get out and they say, well, how good does it feel being an academic, earning 15 grand a year, teaching five courses? How good do you think it feels not being an academic, being a consultant and earning 60 grand a year and having a nice holiday. Sounds really nice. Because I I can live with the shame
0: of... (laughs) You get over it fast. (laughs) I would imagine. I get that first paycheck. I'd be like, woohoo! Yeah.
1: (laughs) You go write your book, baby. I
0: don't care. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we should close out with our final question. So we've talked about quite a few things in a short span of time. But I think as individuals who've been part of the system, either as students, staff, or both, how can we bring about awareness on a larger scale in order to confront the hidden issues and stigma that surround mental illness and poor working conditions in academia? Joseph?
2: Honestly, I feel like there's there's enough awareness already, you know? Like, everyone knows this is a thing. It's time we kind of, you know, started... Actually, talking to one each one another about these things in a like in a way that we just we just haven't really bothered doing yet for some reason. I I don't think there's a lack of awareness that this is an issue. Mm, Yeah, I
0: think you're right, Katie.
1: I would say we should stop putting it under the label of mental health, as though it's a separate thing, as Mm. though there's. You know, it's a, mental health is a problem. Well, we're talking about mental health, not mental illness. Everybody. That's a good point. Has, I think I need to be, I think I need to be wiser about that. But yeah, go on. But you know, it's about everybody, how you feel, what place you're in in your life, whether you're satisfied, whether you uh, have ambition or you feel you need to change direction and take risk or curtail c- the risk. You know, all of these things are happening to every single individual all the time. And universities need to look at themselves and think, what the hell are we? We're not schools. We're not Tesco. Uh, what exactly, or what is the purpose and what is our function and how can we do that better? Because I think uh, the crisis that we've been describing is, has been compounded, as we say, by, by changes in the very, the systems and structures of our institutions. And I agree with Joseph. We don't need a load more kind of campaigns or anything. Everyone knows it's there. Either do something, we either look at ourselves and we do something about the nature of our profession um, or this will continue. Yeah, and it's not going to get away by itself.
0: Yeah. Well, with that, I'd say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Anne Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Katie Layton jones and Joseph Ola for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on mental health issues or concerns in academia will be available in the show notes. We'd also like to let our listeners know that we've decided to extend our COVID series by having one more episode focusing on the positive experiences people have had as a result of the lockdown. If you have a story you would like to share and or you'd like to be on the show, please feel free to send us a message on our Facebook page or our website. In the meantime, we'd like to thank the show's producer, Richard Wand, for turning my office into a not-too-shabby studio, as well as thank our Patreon members, Carrie, Denny, and Carol, for helping to make this show possible. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to support our podcast and become a patron where for as little as one pound per month, you can get early access to episodes as well as live video and audio streams of the show so that you can help support our internship program on podcast production. We also have a few activities planned up our sleeves for our Patreon members, including upcoming workshops and Q&As. For those wanting to learn more about podcasting, all you need to do is become a Patreon member to learn more. You can also subscribe to our podcast by exploring our Facebook page and blog. In fact, tell your friends. Let them know how much you enjoyed the show and feel free to leave a comment. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.